Good morning. It's a, it's a joy to be with you this morning and a, a privilege. My wife, Christy, and our five daughters are back in Texas. They wish they could be here this morning, but unfortunately weren't able to make, uh, make the trip. But uh, as many as you know uh, or have heard, my wife and I, Christy, grew up in this church. My parents are still here. Christy's parents were in this church for a long time. In fact, uh, my wife and I were engaged out in the parking lot out here, and we were married in uh, this worship center because the church had such a, a big part in our life. And so we often think of this church. We were deeply shaped by the people here and by the Word of God that was ministered here. And, and so we thank God for you, and we pray often for this church, for you and for the elders and for the man who will come and, and lead you and shepherd you. And uh, it's a joy for me to get to have the opportunity. I thank the elders for the privilege of uh, just helping to bridge the gap as, as you anticipate the Lord bringing that man. I will invite you this morning to turn to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 6 in your Bible. And uh, we're going to consider this morning the account of God's deliverance through Gideon. God's deliverance and His amazing grace displayed through Gideon. And let's pray together as we begin our time this morning. Father, I do thank you for the joy that it is to gather this morning. I thank you that we can worship you, that you are great and, and good and gracious. And Lord, I thank you now that we can come to your word. Lord, it is truth and we, we come humbly before it. We long to see you more clearly and to respond rightly to what you've revealed. And so give us eyes to see and ears to hear all that you would have for us. Lord, we delight in this time and we entrust it to you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the book of Judges comes after the time when Israel had finally entered the promised land. The, the conquest of the book of Joshua immediately preceding Judges is one of the high points of the Old Testament, a time of great obedience and faith. And the book of Judges stands in stark contrast to that. Rather than a time of great hope, it's a time of much defeat. Rather than a time of great obedience, it's a time of disobedience. In fact, Judges records seven cycles of the nation's disobedience, followed by God's discipline, followed by the people crying out and God raising up a deliverer, only to see it happen time and time again. You know, it's easy in, in focusing on the book of Judges, as we will do this morning, to, to primarily see the failure of Israel and how they were prone to wander. And, and certainly we should recognize that in ourselves as we consider uh, the text this morning. And, or it's easy to focus on the, the human deliverers. Some stories that we're familiar with, like Gideon that we'll consider this morning, or Samson, and, and, uh, and to just look at their life and to say, what can I learn from the example of Gideon? And how he lived and how I should live like him or not like him in some cases. But really, it's against the backdrop of of human sin and failure in this book, that the amazing grace of God shines brightly. Because God in this book is incredibly gracious to His people, and God has been incredibly gracious to us. And so, rather than focusing primarily on the people in this account, as, although we will, the focus, the spotlight, if you will, ought to be shined on God, and particularly on His grace. Our right response this morning as we think about Gideon and the text before us is not, I want to be like Gideon or I don't want to be like Gideon. It's not, I don't want to mess up like Israel did. It's awe and wonder because God is gracious. And so this account which shines the spotlight on God's amazing grace, it begins really as grace always does with an undeserving people in chapter 6 verses 1 through 10. Follow along with me beginning in verse 1 an undeserving people. It says, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. As I mentioned, this is nothing new in the book of Judges. This is the cycle that takes place time and time again. Back in Judges chapter 3, verse 12, we saw this before, or it says this before, the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Moab against Israel. And in Judges 4, verse 1, the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord brought them into the hand of the king of Canaan. So this is a recurring theme. The people do evil. They reject God. They disobey Him. And God raises up 
an enemy of Israel to oppress them as discipline for their sin. This happens after this account in Judges 10 and 13 and others. So the people did evil, and God's raised up the Midianites to oppress them, it says, for seven years. And pick up in verse 2, where we see more of what that looked like. It says, the power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. They were fleeing from Midian, hiding out in the caves and the dens that were up in the mountain region of Israel. For when Israel had sown, when they planted their crops, the Midianites would come at the harvest time, along with the Amalekites and the sons of the east, against them. And they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, as well as no sheep, oxen, or donkey. So the Midianites would come at at harvest time after Israel had worked hard to plant and to cultivate their crops so that they could live and have sustenance. The Midianites and their allies would come and they would camp and let their livestock feast on the the produce of Israel. And and verse 5 says they would then go out like locusts in number, number, riding on their camels. Camel warfare, a new kind of warfare back in that day. Wouldn't be real effective today, but it was intimidating and tremendously effective then. They'd ride out and they would take all that was good in Israel for themselves. Year after year, this happened like locusts, it describes. Coming in, ravishing the land, and then dispersing again. Well, after seven years, look at verse 6. It says, so Israel was brought very low because of Midian. They were humbled. They were broken. Economically, they were broken. Emotionally beat down from year after year of this oppression. And as a result of that, verse 6 says, so they cried out to the Lord. I don't know that this was a a cry of genuine brokenness and repentance. We'll see their, their nation is still characterized by idolatry. But they at least recognize, God, we need help. We are broken. We are humbled before you. Now again, this is the pattern. This is that cycle I described. They, they sin and disobey. God brings discipline, and then eventually the people cry out. They've done this before. Back in Judges 3, verse 15, when they cried out to the Lord, it says the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. In chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, they cried out to the Lord, and again, God raised up Deborah, and then also Barak, who was uh, alongside her to lead and deliver the people. Well, it's interesting, in this account, in chapter 6, it it says something different. It says they cried out to the Lord, and verse 8 says that the the Lord, in response, sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. This was different. They were expecting a deliverer, somebody to, to free them from the Midianite oppression, and God sends them a prophet to confront them. Notice what the prophet says. He said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It is I who brought you up from Egypt, who brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of all the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. God's message is, I've done all this for you. In your history, I've, I've freed you from slavery. I've handed you this good promised land. I've been gracious and good to you. And how have you responded? You have spurned me. You have rejected me. You have disobeyed me. You have treated my goodness with, with just disdain. What's his point in this? He's confronting them, but I think he's magnifying and reminding us that these people did not deserve deliverance. You know, this had happened multiple times already, not for the whole nation at a time. Some of these were more tribal uh, areas that were oppressed at different times in the book of Judges. But they had seen God's grace. They'd seen God's deliverance. And I think they'd started to think, oh, we just kind of deserve this. This is just what happens. We, We get oppressed. We cry out, God delivers us. And God sends a prophet to remind them, while I may deliver you, you don't deserve it. It is a gift of my grace. You have done nothing but spurn me. One commentator puts it this way. He says, the point of this is that if God raises a deliverer for Israel, it is an entirely gracious act. 
Before God acts on their behalf, He reminds them that there is nothing in them, nothing that they have done that warrants God's deliverance from the oppression. And yet, that's exactly what God does for them. For this undeserving people, this people who had spurned God's goodness and rejected and disobeyed Him, God provides, and secondly, an unexpected deliverer. An unexpected deliverer. Pick up in verse 11. God says this, Then the angel of the Lord, likely a a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus, the the Word of God, the One who came to, to communicate to man, came and sat under the oak which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord comes to the man Gideon. Now there's, there's nothing in the text that indicates that Gideon is anything other than exactly like the rest of the people. In fact, we'll see in just a minute in later in chapter 6 that the altar to Baal in that region was on his dad's property. His dad owned the altar to, uh, to Baal. So these, he's an idolater. He's from an idolatrous family. We'll see later on in chapter 8 he was a, a polygamist. There's nothing in the text like we read in other accounts like with Noah where it says, now Noah was a righteous man. He stood out from the people. Or Job who was blameless and upright. There's none of that here. It's just he came to Gideon who was one of these undeserving people. And yet God comes to him and He's communicating and coming to him, I will use you. But notice where God comes to him. Where's Gideon? He's in a wine press and he's in that wine press beating out grain. Now that's not how you're supposed to do it, is it? What are you supposed to do in a wine press? You're supposed to press grapes to make wine. It's It's a recessed area, a big bowl that you can crush the grapes in. Gideon is down in a big bowl, in a big hole, beating out his grain. Now, we don't beat out a lot of grain. We go to the store and buy our flour, so we don't do this a lot. But if you're going to beat out grain, you want to do it somewhere where the wind will blow the chaff away and you're left with the grain. A big bowl is a lousy place to do that. So why is Gideon beating out his grain there? Well, it says he's, he's afraid, he's fearful of the Midianites. He wants to save it from the Midianites. But notice what God says to him in verse 12. It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Now, would you describe Gideon at this point, hiding out in a wine press, beating his grain, as a valiant warrior? No, not really. You'd say you are, you're afraid of the Midianites just like everybody else. You're hiding out. But God says, you are a valiant warrior. But he tells us why he can be that. Because the Lord is with you. You see, God, even in this account, is is shining the spotlight not on Gideon and saying, Gideon, you can do this. He's saying, you can do this because I am able to do this through you. Gideon, it's not about you. It's about what God can do. He's magnifying his grace. Notice Gideon's response. It's a response of doubt. God says, the Lord is with you. Verse 13, Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us to the hand of Midian. God says, I'm with you. Gideon says, I I don't really see that. It's not what I see when I look at my circumstances. I don't see you with us. Gideon's theology is actually pretty accurate here when he says that God had abandoned them and given us into the hands of the Midianites. He knew this is from the hand of God. God is the sovereign one disciplining us. But his tone's all wrong. Instead of recognizing that we're in this mess because of our sin, because we've disobeyed you and deserve discipline, Gideon is saying, God, where you been? You've abandoned us. You've left us on our own. He's doubting God. He's, he's questioning God. God is patient with him. God God encourages him in verse 14. And he says, The Lord said to him, looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Again, I don't think God is saying, Gideon, you got this. You can do this. Because he says, Have I not sent you? His point is, this is, again, not about your strength, Gideon. This is about the strength I will give you and empower you to do this. 
Gideon continues to offer excuses. Verse 15, he said, How shall I deliver Israel? My family is the least in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's house. Reminds us maybe of, of Moses. Excuse after excuse when God called him. My family's nothing. We'll see that's not entirely true. He says, I'm, I'm the youngest. I'm not the guy to use for this. You know, I think God's point is, you're right. You're nothing. You're, there's nothing in you that warrants me using you. There's nothing in you that, that would draw attention to you being the candidate for the, this job, for the deliverer role. This is, this is about me. And so God encourages him, verse 16, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So it doesn't matter what your family background is. It doesn't matter if you're the youngest. It doesn't matter what resources you have. What matters is I am with you. Now we'd love at this point to see Gideon say, Okay, sign me up, right? I get it, Lord. <laughs> okay, I've made my excuses. I've, I've tried to come up with a reason why this isn't a good plan uh, to use me and yet you continue down this road. But instead of saying, sign me up, he's still hesitant, and he says, show me a sign. Verse 17, Gideon said, if, if now I've found favor in your sight, show me a sign that it's you who speak to me. And, and so he brought out a sacrifice, and he laid it before the angel of the Lord, and, and his, his thought was, if, if this is truly God speaking to me, God will, uh, will consume the sacrifice. And that's exactly what God did. As if to communicate, it, it is me who's speaking to you, who's calling you to this. And so when Gideon saw that, verse 22, he recognizes, it is you, alas, O Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord. But this is not the last doubt we see in Gideon. If you remember one of the accounts from Gideon, it's probably when he put the fleece out later in this chapter. And we're going to have to skip through parts of this because I want to cover the, the entire account. But in chapter 6, verse 36, later on, not too long after this, He's seen this sign. God's been patient and reassured him multiple times, and yet he's still struggling. He's still doubting. And so he, he comes to God asking for another sign. You remember, he comes and says, God, if, if you're really going to do this, verse 37, I'll put a fleece out on the threshing floor. And if there's dew on the fleece only tomorrow, and the ground all around it's dry, then I'll know you're with me. And so he does that. And then the next day, he comes back to God in verse 39 and says, don't let your anger burn against me, but I'm going to ask one more time. How about we reverse it? This time, let the fleece be dry and the ground be wet, just in case. Now, this is not a model for good decision-making, right? I, I remember as a child, we had a, a mitt that we would use to wash our car, and it looked kind of fleece-like. And I remember, I don't remember what the decision I was making at the time or what I was thinking about, maybe if I was going to marry like my wife or something when I first met her, I don't know. Uh, and I set it outside and, and was thinking, God, do this. You know, let the fleece be dry and the ground be wet. And every time the ground was all wet and the fleece was wet because that's what happened. So this is not a model for decision making. This is a sign of Gideon's lack of faith. I mean, he knows it. He comes to God and says, please don't be angry that I'm asking this again. Right? Gideon knows. What this is revealing is I don't trust you, Lord. I doubt. Because that's Gideon. That's the deliverer that God is raising up. He, he questions God. He's got zero background that would inspire confidence from a religious point of view. He's been an idolater. He's, he's questioning and doubting God. He's fearful. Look back at verse 25. After uh, Gideon is finally convinced that it is the angel of the Lord speaking to him, that God is going to use him, God gives him some instructions that same night, verse 25, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and a second bull. It's a, it's a complicated Hebrew expression, probably not really saying take two bulls, but take the special bull and, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this stronghold in an orderly manner, and take that second bull or that special bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood. He says, before I'm going to use you, you've got to get rid of the idolatry. The problem is not the Midianites. The problem is the idolatry in Israel. And so he says, Gideon, your first job as my deliverer is to tear down the idol, to tear down the altar to Baal. You've got to rid the land 
of the idol worship. And so verse 27 says, Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And it's like, all right, he gets it. Immediate obedience. He's doing exactly what God said. But then notice why he did it. He did it right away. Even his obedience is marred by less than honorable motivations. Look, he he did it right away. Why? The second half of verse 27, because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, so he did it by night. See, God came to him and said, Gideon, tear down the altar. He looks out. It's dark. Nobody will know that I've done it, so let's go, guys. We're out here. And he does it. He's afraid. He's fearful of their response. He had good reason. They they were mad (laughs) that he tore down the altar. His His dad comes in this chapter and and essentially defends him, and the people want to kill Gideon for tearing down the altar. And and Gideon's dad, who owned the the altar, says, basically, let let Baal deal with him. If Baal's really God, you don't have to take care of Gideon. Baal can handle it. And so they let him go. They change his, or give him the name Jeroboam, which we'll see throughout, meaning that he contended against Baal. So Gideon is a... A doubting, fearful idolater. And God says, yep, you're the guy. You're the one that I will raise up. And again, we can see countless examples of these characteristics of Gideon, even in the the rest of this account. You know, he's the perfect man for the job, right? Not from our perspective. He's not the guy I would have chosen. You know, I'd be looking for somebody who was really a valiant warrior, somebody who who would trust God and do right what he said with the right motivation, somebody who was not afraid to do what was right no matter the cost, somebody who'd already been a worshiper of Yahweh, the true God. And yet God chooses Gideon, an unexpected deliverer. Why? Why does God choose such a man? You know, certainly in Scripture, there are men who rise above the culture around them who stood out, guys like Noah and Job, as we've mentioned, men like David, who, who were, were different than those around them, who loved God and who were faithful to Him. But the reality is that even those guys, even the, the heroes of Scripture, Moses and others, are weak and unworthy men, aren't they? Every account of the heroes of the Bible, it still reminds us of their failures, failures, and their weakness. The most heroic men in the Bible still fall short of God's mark. And that's true with Gideon. That's not to cause us to ignore their faults or to affirm their faults or to say it's okay to have these same patterns of sin in our life because Gideon did and David did and Moses did. That's not the point. But the point is to remind us that if God will use us, If God is going to be at work through us for the good of others or for the glory of His name, it will be in spite of us, not because of us. As Gideon was not chosen because he was the perfect man for the job, he was chosen because when God used Gideon, it was clear that this was about God's work, not Gideon's. In fact, it's those who are most aware of of their unworthiness who are most useful to God. You remember in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, God was, uh, had revealed a, a number of things to Paul that were amazing as he became an apostle. And, and he was tempted to, to be proud, tempted to exalt himself. And so God had sent him a messenger of Satan. What it was, we don't know for sure. And, and, and to, to keep him humble. And Paul had asked God, Three times, please take this away from me. Please remove this from me. And God's response to him was, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. God said, you don't need to be stronger. You need to be more aware of your weakness, more dependent on my grace. Paul responded, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. As God delights in giving grace to those who recognize they need it, 
that they are desperate for Him and utterly dependent on Him. Hebrews 11, which commends men like Gideon and Barak and Samson in verse 32 of Hebrews 11, it it goes on to tell of what they did, and it describes things in verse 34 like they quenched the power of the fire, they escaped the edge of the sword, and then it puts in this phrase, from weakness were made strong. Gideon is commended in Hebrews 11 because he was weak. And out of that weakness, God was able to give strength to use him. You know, it's pretty easy to see the weakness in Gideon, isn't it? It's easy to read this account and, and pick holes in, in why he's a weak man and an unworthy deliverer. It's harder for us. It's harder for us to embrace our weakness, not again in the sense of being content with our sin, but in recognizing that we are utterly dependent on God and that there is nothing good in us that has drawn God towards us. As we need to be like Paul to be content with our weakness, to recognize this is not about what we can do in life. This is about what God can do through us. Do you feel inadequate for what God's called you to? Maybe as a a mom of young children or as a husband or a wife or in a, a work situation? Do you feel like it's beyond you? It's okay. It's right. We are dependent on Him. We don't have what it takes, but God gives grace to those who recognize that. And He does that because through using those who recognize their weakness, God gets the glory, which is what we'll see. And so God takes this fearful, doubting idolater and He raises up an unexpected deliverer. Look at verse 33 of Judges 6. It says, Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east assembled themselves, and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel, just as they had done year after year. They come and they camp. And they're ready to go and and scavenge the land. But verse 34 says, So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. The Spirit of God came upon him. Not in the sense of of the New Testament baptism of the Spirit that comes upon a believer, the the indwelling of the Spirit that is true for every Christian, or the filling of the Spirit, the control of the Spirit. This is more the the Old Testament um, filling of the Spirit or or giving of the Spirit to accomplish a particular task. Sometimes called the the theocratic anointing of the Spirit that God gave to, to certain men at certain times for certain tasks. That's what He gives to Gideon. The point again is this is not about Gideon. This is about God empowering him to accomplish his purposes. And so as the Spirit comes upon Gideon, he blew his trumpet, and the Abizrites, those who were connected to his family, were called together to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout Manasseh, and they also were called together to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. Gideon goes from hiding in the winepress from being afraid of, of his own people killing him to now having much of Israel eager to follow him because of God empowering and strengthening him. God, for this undeserving people, raised up an unexpected deliverer. And we see next, he gave him an unorthodox plan. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. It says, Then Jeroboam, Baal, that is Gideon, And all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. Here in the the Jezreel Valley, in the heart of Israel, a massive valley with two massive armies camped on either side. We see later in verse 3 that there were about 32,000 Israelites, a little less than the population of Cape Girardeau, We see in chapter 8, verse 10, that there was about 135,000 Midianites. A lot of people assembled for this this conflict. You know, from the Israelites' perspective, if you're there, you're glad to see 32,000 other people, right? But you're also thinking, you know what, I think the odds are slightly in their favor. They got over four times the people that we have. You know, God says, yeah, we, we do have a problem here. There's too many people. Look what he says to Gideon. The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many. What? They got 135,000. We got 32,000. I don't think you get this, God. They got a lot more than us. And he says, no, you have too many 
people. You have too many people for me to give Midian into their hands. Why? Because God can't control that many people or can't use that many people? No. Because as he says in verse 2 there, for Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. So if I use you and these 32,000 people who are with you, at the end of the day, when I deliver you, you're going to be tempted to say, you know what, this was all about us. Look at us. Woohoo! The underdog. We, we did this. And so God says, that's, that's not going to work. And so verse 3 says, tell the people, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, whoever's afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So Gideon gets their attention. Guys, any of you afraid? Any of you want to go home? They look around. 22,000 of them say, you know what? Yeah, I'll, I'll go home. Thanks. We're out of here. No shame in that. Admitting I'm afraid, I'm out of here. 22,000 guys walk off. Now it's 10,000 versus 135,000. Gideon's probably thinking, hmm, I, I think we are definitely dependent on you, Lord, right? You will get the glory for this. And God says, you know what? We're not quite there yet. <laughs> Look at what he says to them. Verse 4, he says, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. It shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you, but everyone of whom I say this one shall not go, he shall not go. And he, he basically separates them by how you drink, and there's been a lot of ink spilled about what this test was. I think basically it was those who kneeled down and drank like a dog, licking up and bending over. Those were the ones who got to go home, and those who kind of kneeled and brought water up to their mouth were the ones who got to stay there, there's been you know, a lot of question, questions about whether that was intentional on God's part to weed out those who weren't alert or something like that. I think it was just a way to whittle it down and to whittle it a long way down. The result in verse 7 or verse 6 was that there were 300 men. From 32,000 down to 10,000, and now God says, okay, you got 300 guys. In verse 7, God says, That's, that'll work. Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. Let everybody else go home. Guys, this is a test of faith for Gideon, isn't it? This is where Gideon has to decide. Do I believe human wisdom or do I believe God's word, God's command to me? Human wisdom would say 10,000 versus 135,000 is a bad idea. 300 versus 135,000 is like writing your own death warrant, right? God's wisdom says, nope, that's perfect. <laughs> that's exactly what I want you to do. Gideon and the other guys had a choice of are we going to respond in faith? And verse 8 says, the 300 took their provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and Gideon sent all the others back to their tent. They did it. They obeyed the Word of God even when it made no sense from a human perspective. God had given them clear, a clear plan, and it was a plan that made no sense from man's wisdom, and yet they responded in faith. You know, what about us? God's Word is filled with instruction for us and truth for us that is contrary to cultural wisdom, isn't it? You know, we've seen a a lot recently in our world about what the, the definition of marriage is. God says one thing, man's wisdom says another thing. Who are we going to believe? You know, there's a lot of issues in life where God's Word is countercultural, dealing with issues like marriage roles and, and how we parent and even the blessing of children and how we use our money and sexual purity and on and on it goes. How do we respond and in faith and obedience. You know, even as a, as a church corporately, there's a, a lot of things that the world would call us to as a church to do and to be even other churches that are based more on man's wisdom than simply following God's plan for the church. Okay, Bible Chapel has an opportunity to, to recommit in faith to the plan that God's given that we we see in Scripture. We won't take the time to turn there this morning, but Ephesians 4 lays out God's plan for the church, that God gives gifted men who equip the body through the proclamation of the Word and, and through their example and, and edification so that the body does the work of ministry. It's not a flashy plan, but it's God's plan. And God says, through that, I will build my church 
Through that, I will make disciples of the nations. Are we going to trust God's plan? We're going to submit to Him even when it's unorthodox, when it doesn't make sense to us. Well, Gideon and the men responded to God's unorthodox plan in faith and obedience. And so, for this undeserving people, God raised up an unexpected deliverer and He gave them an unorthodox plan that resulted in, fourthly, an uncanny deliverance. Could pick up in verse 16. It says, He divided the 300 men into three companies, and He put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all who were with them, with torches inside the pitchers. And He said to them, Look at Me and do likewise, and behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do, and when I... And all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say, for the Lord and Gideon. So Gideon, verse 19, and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just posted the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. And when the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing And they cried a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each stood in his place around the camp. And what happened? All the army of the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. In verse 22, when they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even through the whole army as they fled. We see in chapter 8, 120,000 Midianite soldiers killed one another in the chaos. Guys, was that what you would expect? Was that working out just as, as a, a human would calculate that, hey, I bet if we put 300 strategically placed guys with trumpets and torches, they'll all kill themselves. How often does that work? <laughs> Not very, right? Usually they wake up and they look at you and then they come kill you. But no, God in His grace used this unorthodox plan to deliver the people in an amazing, miraculous way. There was no human rationale for this. God was simply gracious. They followed Him. They trusted Him. And as a result, they were delivered from the Midianites. Again, this is the pattern of Scripture. This is not the exception. God always does His work in ways that magnify His grace, not the humans who are involved. David versus Goliath, same thing. It's, it's not that little guys can do big things. It's that God is amazing and can use those who, from a human perspective, have, have no reason to accomplish their plans. Walking around the walls of Jericho, same thing time and time again. God delivered His people in a miraculous way. Now, what would you expect next? The Midianites are fleeing. God has delivered His people from the oppression that they deserved in His grace. Look back at chapter 4, the end of chapter 4. When God had previously delivered the people of Israel, one of the previous cycles of sin and disobedience, notice their response. Pick up in verse 23 of chapter 4. It said, God subdued on that day Jabin the king of Canaan before the sons of Israel. Verse 24, the hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabin the king of Canaan until they had destroyed Jabin the king of Canaan. God delivered them again from a a previous enemy from the Canaanites. And verse 5, then Deborah and Barak, those that God had raised up to deliver them, sang on that day, saying that the leaders led in Israel, that the people volunteered, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O rulers, I to the Lord I will sing. I will sing praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. See, God had delivered them, and the people's response led by uh, Deborah and Barak was that any of this happened. (laughs) Praise God that this happened. It's not about us. This is about God. There was worship, and the rest of chapter 5 is a praise to God for delivering the people at that previous time. Well, notice what's missing At the end of chapter 7 and into chapter 8, after God delivers the people, after they're killing each other and fleeing, Gideon and his men continue to pursue them, 
And when you pick up in chapter 8, you might expect to see the people rejoicing and offering sacrifices to God and and praising Him for all that He'd done. But instead, you see a self-focused zeal for personal agenda and exaltation. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. It says, Then the men of Ephraim, they weren't in the list of those who Gideon had called or those who were called to help in the pursuit said to him, why is this thing, or what is this thing that you have done to us, not calling us when you went to fight against Midian? He says, hey, you left us out. Why didn't you give us a piece of the glory? What should the Ephraimites have been saying? They should have been saying, God is amazing that he didn't need us, or really many of you guys, to deliver the people. They should have said, God is gracious. We, don't, we didn't even need us. But they said, hey, we wanted our piece of the glory. We wanted to be a part of this. Gideon responds essentially no better. He, he puffs them up for a while, gets them to be okay. And then we see Gideon in verse 4 and the 300 men continuing to pursue the Midianites, which is an appropriate response. But we see how he handles that. And we don't have time again to read in detail. You can do that maybe this afternoon or this week. But he's pursuing them. And some of the Israelites who are there are unwilling to help him in the way that he thinks he should be helped. They don't want to give him the supplies or or participate in the way that he desires. And so he pursues some of the leaders of the Midianites on his own. But we see, if you pick up in uh, in verse uh, verse 15 of chapter 8 there, he, he came to them and he... Uh, captured the, the leaders that he was chasing, Zeba and Zalmunna. And then he took, verse 16, the elders of the city in Israel and the thorns of the wilderness and the briars, and he disciplined the men of Succoth with them, and he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Those were the Israelites who hadn't done what he wanted them to do. He's whipping them with thorns, and he's tearing down their city and killing them because they didn't help him in the way that he wanted them to help. And he goes to Zeba and Zalmunna, two of these leaders, and he confronts them. And basically, he kills them, not because God wanted them to be killed, but because they had killed his brothers in the past. Gideon takes this deliverance of God, and what he does is he makes it all about him and his personal vendetta. He he takes the spotlight off of God, and he shines it on what he is seeking to accomplish. You know, it's so easy when God is gracious to us to take the spotlight off of God, the giver of grace, and to shift the focus to us and to what we think we deserve or the honor that we think is due us. God is the one who is worthy of that honor and that grace. But it's easy not only to shift it on ourselves, but sometimes to shift it on others, which is what the people of Israel do. Pick up in verse 22 of chapter 8. It says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your sons and your sons' sons, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Now it's appropriate, biblically, to honor other people, to give honor to those whom it's due. In fact, the people are are chastised at the end of this chapter for not continuing to do good to Gideon's household. But their focus is all wrong here, isn't it? What do they say? They say to Gideon, you have delivered us from the hand of, the Midian, of Midian. Is that true? Well, no, it's not. God had delivered them. He'd used Gideon. But God was the deliverer. But they're so focused on Gideon and what he's done that they're missing a perspective that says God is really the one who's at work here. God is the one who is gracious. Just notice the contrast again between chapter 5, we bless you, God, and chapter 8 here, hey, Gideon, be our king because you delivered us. Gideon again responded theologically right in verse 23. He said, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you, for the Lord shall rule over you. He understood that, no, I'm, I'm not to be king. God is to be king. But if you look at his response he says, but I'm, I'm okay if you treat me a little bit like a king. I'm good with that. He says, Gideon said to them, verse 24, I'd request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. 
for they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they said, we will surely give them. So he spread out a garment. They all threw an earring on. And verse 26 says, the weight of gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. A lot of gold. So again, he says, no, I can't rule over you. God needs to rule over you. But if you want to, you know, kind of treat me like a king anyway, even though I'm not, that'll work. Yes, the spotlight, which should have been on God, shifted to Gideon. You know, there's some debate over whether he really refused to be king. I think he did, but again, I think he enjoyed the, uh, the opportunity to be treated like a king. But we see a, not only a lack of worship and a, a zeal for their own personal agenda and exaltation, but also just a lack of, of basic obedience. It says in verse 28 that Midianite was subdued before the sons of Israel. For 40 years there was peace in the days of Gideon. And then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. And verse 30 says, Now Gideon had 70 sons. It's tough to have 70 sons unless you do as he did, which were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. Gideon disobeyed the Lord. And so did all of Israel. It says, verse 33, As soon as Gideon was dead, the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Bareth their God. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. The grace of God is intended to motivate not a license to sin and live however we want, but it's intended to motivate a response of gratitude, of grateful obedience for what God has done for us. The people abused God's grace. They took it for granted, and they responded in continued disobedience. You know, I hope this morning that we will each be amazed at God's grace. That we will be amazed at God's grace demonstrated here in His deliverance through Gideon. That God took that undeserving people, and He raised up an unexpected deliverer, and and He used an unorthodox plan to give them an uncanny deliverance. This morning, there's a, a greater parallel I want us to recognize. The judges, like Gideon, were but a taste of a greater deliverer and a greater deliverance yet to come. All of the Old Testament anticipates and points towards the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, just as Israel was undeserving, we are an undeserving people. Again, it's easy in reading the Old Testament to stand in judgment on Israel. We need to see ourselves in Israel. To recognize that we have spurned God's good gifts apart from Christ. And and we have lived how we wanted in spite of that. That may not be the testimony of you today because you've come to faith in Christ. But that's the testimony of your life pre-Christ. Is not recognizing God's good gifts. Not responding to God's good gifts in faith and obedience. Some of you may still be there. You may be taking for granted the goodness of God in your life. Living how you want to live. And yet for us, an undeserving people, Christ was an unexpected deliverer. God raised up a man, the Lord Jesus. God humbled Himself and He became man. He took on human weakness and frailty. He became like us in every way except for sin. He was a man who had no stately form or, or majesty that we should be drawn to Him. There was nothing in Christ that would say, that's, that's the Messiah. And yet God sent Him, and he, he sent Him to fulfill an unorthodox plan, the Gospel. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1 as we wrap up this morning. 1 Corinthians 1 describes how the Gospel, the plan of God for our redemption and salvation is foolishness. Verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1 says the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The Gospel, the truth that God sent His Son to take the place of sinners on the cross, the world looks at that and says, ah, that's foolish. There's nothing impressive about that. That doesn't exalt us. There's nothing in that for us. Jews, it says in verse 22, look for signs, Greeks for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and to Gentiles, it's foolishness. That unorthodox plan, the plan that the world looks at and scoffs at, 
God used that plan to accomplish an amazing, uncanny deliverance for us. Deliverance from our sin. So the question for us is, how are we going to respond? Are we going to respond in faith to that plan of God to become saved, to be a Christian? And are we going to continue to respond in awe and wonder at what God has done for us in Christ? Will we be amazed at His grace and respond in worship Or will we be so focused and consumed with our own agenda and our own exaltation? Will we think life is all about us? Or will we realize and continue to focus on the fact that it's all about Him? Will we view God's grace as license, thinking, you know, He's been gracious to us in the past, so it's really no big deal if we continue the cycle of sin? Or will we be motivated by grace to obey because God has been so kind to us and so good to us? Will we boast not in ourselves, but in the Lord. That's what the Gospel does. First Corinthians continues. Again, you can read more of it later. That, that not many of us were wise or noble or none of us were, were deserving of God's choice in our life. And yet, he's, he's worked in our life, verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. God has done this work on our behalf so that verse 31 says, let him who boasts, boast in Christ. You guys, in Gideon's account, in this account of Gideon, we get a glimpse of the amazing grace of God. Of how God is gracious to an undeserving people as He's been gracious to us. By raising up an unexpected deliverer. For them, it was Gideon, a doubting, fearful idolater. For us, it's the man, our Lord Jesus Christ. And He took an unorthodox plan. For them, 300 guys with trumpets for us the death of his son to give an uncanny deliverance may we respond in a worthy manner unlike israel giving all glory to him let's pray together father we are grateful for the time this morning to study your word we thank you for the truth and the reminder of your amazing grace lord might we respond in faith Might we respond in worship. Might we respond in obedience for the glory of your name. Lord, it's not about us. It's all about you. And we long to see you exalted individually and corporately in this church. We thank you in Christ's name.